You gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. What are you getting so crazy about? It's just music. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I are going to conduct a double classic album dissection of Big Star's number one record and Radio City. Plus, we'll review the latest installment of Jay-Z's Blueprint series. Support for Sound Opinions is provided by founding sponsor Alltech Lansing and their new mixed speaker system, the next-generation boombox for iPhone and iPod. Online at alltechlansing.com. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news. Big news out of the English music scene this week, and no, it does not involve debates about stereo versus mono representations <laughs> of music that was recorded 40 years ago. That, of course, the Beatles reissuing their entire catalog on compact disc. But yeah, there was music that was more current making news in England this week as well. What you're hearing is a little bit of a new album by the rapper Speech DeBell called Speech Therapy. You may not have heard of this record. Uh, chances are not many people in England have heard of it either because it sold fewer than 3,000 copies, but it just won the most prestigious prize in English music, the Mercury Prize. Jim, we don't have to tell our listeners how critical we've been of uh, America's equivalent of the Mercury Prize, the Grammy Awards. It seems to me that the British Music Awards are going the exact opposite direction of the Grammys, where the Grammys reward records that inevitably have sold millions and millions of copies and are huge mainstream successes. The Mercury Prize goes in the exact opposite direction. You know, in America, a better barometer of the best music made in any given year is always the Village Voice, Pears and Jop critics poll. What the Mercury Prize in the UK does is combine those two. And I think they get a pretty good roster every year if you go back to the beginning of this prize in 92. Yes, they do. Uh, Some uh, major names, certainly in English music. We're talking about people like Pulp and P.J. Harvey, Franz Ferdinand, the Arctic Monkeys. But then there have been some curious winners as well. Uh, Artists that we've never heard of since they won their initial awards. Artists like Suede and M. People and Ronnie Size. It's interesting that Ronnie Size, who won the award in 1997, uh, won in the same year as Radiohead's OK Computer. Yeah. So they've had some curious choices. uh, Yeah, but you can't can't accuse them of of going for the uh, lowest common denominator. At least they're they're championing art for art's sake. It often results in a, in a quick sales boost, and then sometimes the artists disappear. And Speech to Bell is, is interesting, uh, Greg. You know, this young woman, 26 years old now, born Corinne Elliott, was homeless for a time, living in uh, London hostels for the homeless. And part of what she's rapping about on her debut album, Speech Therapy, are those experiences. This is a song that's a single from her album, Speech Therapy. It is called The Key. 
Unsound Opinions. I know you hear my words, I know you read between the lines. I'm a circle the truth, but I will not tell a lie. I remember the time I came on with a knife. I don't want to take life, but I want to take life. But I'm beginning that now I can walk from a vow. My days on road to show me life is like gold. The past this world is big enough for us both. I know you was down, I also know that you coped. I hope that means you learn to slow your road and keep your mouth closed. A proper attitude is better than fancy clothes. So as a chat to close, that's how the story goes. As I've grown, I've learned that friends. Telephone. I heard you got your yard now, fully pro now. It's not our arms house, cause I overstand, yeah. Overstanding is the key, key. Overstanding is the key, key. I heard you got your car now, I see you out town. It's not our arms house, cause I overstand, yeah. Overstanding is the key, key. Overstanding is the key, key. That's the key from Mercury Prize winner Speech DeBell on Sound Opinions. That is a song called In the Street. Maybe familiar, Greg, to Couch Potatoes, who are uh, <laughs> fans of that 70s show, as recorded by Cheap Trick. That is the original, however, recorded by Big Star, probably the most influential band in power pop after the Fab Four. These guys changed the history of music in the mid-70s, the 80s, the 90s, all without selling a lot of records. Mm -hmm. We are going to celebrate the legacy of Big Star in a classic album dissection, a first here on Sound Opinions. We're going to do two albums at once because there is a fine reissue of the first two of three Big Star albums, Number One Record and Radio City, along with a new box set, Keep an Eye on the Sky, that has a lot of archival tracks. Really great stuff. Who were these guys? Memphis Kids, raised in that soul capital, but who fell in love with the British invasion sounds of the Beatles and all those groups first came over in the early 60s. They merged the two for an unforgettable sound. Alex Chilton, he was the uh, McCartney, if you will, to Chris Bell's John Lennon. Chilton, when he joined Big Star, had already had a huge career. As a really young kid, he was the voice of the box tops. Wonderful rhythm section in this band, Andy Hummel on bass and Jody Stevens on drums, who was the only one besides Chilton to play on all three Big Star records. We wanted to get insight from him into that first record, number one record, and its follow-up, Radio City. Jody, welcome to Sound Opinions. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, let's start at the beginning. Let's talk about Big Star and how it came together. Famously, Alex Chilton had already had one career. Did he come to you kind of uh, jaded and bitter already about this music industry, or how did he approach you to start this new project? Well, you know, Chris, Andy, and I had a band together, and we were playing as a three-piece at the time, and, uh, you know, I don't remember his sharing any feelings, really, about the past. It was it was more about what we would like to do and, and how, we, how we would go about doing it, but, yeah, I think I first actually met Alex at a gig we were playing at the VFW Hall here in Memphis, and uh, it just all clicked, and he joined into what we were doing, and at that point, we became Big Star. Was there any uh, tension early on in Chris Bell, an extraordinary singer and songwriter himself? You know, you and, and Chris Bell and Andy Hummel already were a band, and now a second singer and songwriter is being added in. Well, the, 
the addition of Alex was, you know, a little more vocal power, another lead singer, another creative mind in terms of songwriting abilities, and uh, and certainly his, his uh, guitar playing. Uh, both very creative guitar players, different a bit stylistically, though still mod- melodically based. And, you know, two guys that paid attention to the guitar sounds they were getting and were, you know, pretty mindful of those. How much of the aesthetic was already there? This kind of take on the the ringing, chiming, Beatlesque pop, but but with that Southern soul. Did Big Star sound like Big Star even before Alex Chilton joined? Well, to an extent, we uh, did. You know, Life is Right was a song, a track that was cut prior to Alex joining the band. And, you know, Alex had made some additions to the song after joining in. There's definitely a pretty heavy shading or influence uh, by Alex on what we were doing, but you know the, the kind of jangly beatly thing was was definitely there. Alex added a bit more of a folky touch. Well, and you were doing this band in the heart of Memphis, in many ways one of the epicenters of soul music in the world, and yet there was a heavy Anglophile influence. You guys were listening to a lot of British music. I mean, how much was what Stax was doing? in Memphis influencing you, and how much was that British music? Uh, it w- did you feel like it was a merger of those two things? Well, you know, the origi- original tr- attraction to music was the, was the Beatles. But, you know, around 68 or so, I uh, I was exposed to Stax and, and what was coming out of there and via the radio, and that was also something I had to do. It it moved me emotionally. I, I had to respond in some way. I wish... You know, dancing was always good, but I was never good at it. So, uh, you know, maybe putting a soul band together was a good, appropriate response to that. And that's what we did. My brother and I played together from the beginning. My brother Jimmy and played bass, and um, we had a neighborhood band that seemed to, to shift from British invasion music to soul music. So, uh, you know, those were two forms of music that meant much to me, both, well, certainly creatively, but emotionally as well. Big Star's debut record in 1972, you you named it number one record. Obviously tongue-in-cheek, but also was there some feeling that you guys had made a record that was going to be a number one record? I mean, were the aspirations like that? Did you talk about the fact that, hey, this is this is really good stuff, and it deserves to be a number one record? You know, we, we all had those feelings. The name Big Star is pretentious. Uh, number one record is, is, like you were saying, it's a chart position, a hopeful chart position, I guess, in Billboard. I guess we had those aspirations of of seeing that success, and certainly I thought the material merited that at the time. I'd kind of like to think that it doesn't now in terms of mainstream radio. But <laughs> Does anything stand out for you, uh, Jody, in the making of that record? What, was this, what were the sessions like? For that record, we actually rehearsed songs prior going into the record, and so the sessions were all, always pretty thoughtful times because it's my first official record. Uh, These are parts that, um, you know, you stop and think about it. They are parts that people will hear from then on, forever. 
I don't know. Now, now that I think about it, that's a pretty weighty thing to to consider going into making a record and creating drum parts and that sort of thing. You know, when a recording session goes goes well, things unfold in in a really kind of magical way. It's people pull guitar riffs out of nowhere. There were both intentional and and pretty spontaneously creative moments going on. And as each kind of layer was added to these songs, it was even that much more exciting. And then certainly you get down to mixing the record, and we were, for number one record and and Radio City, we were involved in that, certainly with number one record, because there was a lot going on. And and at the time, there were manual consoles for mixing, so John Fry enlisted the help of us to... uh, you know, turn knobs and, and uh, push faders up and down. So it's kind of like Twister at the console. Yeah. <laughs> Always a lot of fun in the analog days when all four or five band members and the producer would be at the console and everybody's got their hands on a different slider. Sure. I, it, you know, it was pretty exciting. And then you get to the end of it all and, and you have a listen. And, and uh, it's a damn magical moment for sure. It was for me. When, when I interviewed Chilton a, f- a number of years ago, he said that he and Bell were essentially writing separately, even though most of the songs are written or listed as collaborations. What was your recollection of that uh, collaboration, and how were the songs presented to the rest of the band? You know, the the songs were pre- presented to the rest of the band, and, you know, the best of my recollection anyway, uh, is fairly complete. There may have been lyrical changes uh, after we put band tracks down or during, you know, the recording process or, process or that sort of thing, but... But pretty much Alex and Chris, had, I think, had defined their parts by the time Andy and I were involved. I was just having listened to the box set to sort of refresh my memory. And if I'm reading things into this correctly, watch the sunrise. You know, Chris had the music to that, but um, had a different set of lyrics and even different melody line. And then uh, it sounds like Alex was introduced to the big star lineup and, and came up with something better in mind that wound up doing the lead vocal for it. And yet it seemed like you had a lot of, I'm just guessing, but there was certainly an inventiveness in the way you were playing those drum parts that, you know, some of those fills on, you know, My Life is Right or the way that the last chorus of Ballad of El Gudo jumps... Those are kind of really iconic drum fills now. People reference those all the time. And I take it that you were given enough freedom to sort of do that? Or did they have the song so scripted out that they were kind of coaching you and Andy on how to play your parts? Well, you know, I had a lot of freedom uh, in creating parts. It's not to say that there weren't suggestions made, and, and it points really good ones. But 
on one hand, it was a an, an impulsive kind of thing, and another on the other hand, it was uh, you know it was pretty well thought out in terms of how those drum fills would build during the course of the song. I, you know, I, I always tried to to play musically. I, I wasn't really content to just keep a beat. Was it uh, Keith Moon or who were you emulating, Jody, as a young drummer? No, it could be. It would depend on the moment, but uh, you know, Ringo certainly was was a huge influence and uh, and an impact as as part of the Beatles and getting me getting me into music. But uh, certainly Keith Moon, uh, even B.J. Wilson from uh, Purple, Purple Harum, Harum, yeah, and uh, John Bonham certainly and. Yeah. Uh, Wow, I can't believe I'm drawing a blank. Uh, that, that's a Booker heck of a T- list. Heck of a list well, already. Well, Booker T and the MGs drummer. Uh, yeah, Al Jackson and Al Jackson. Like yeah, Al Jackson, a great player. Yeah, yeah. One of the curiosities for me on on number one record has always been uh, the India song. I just love the notion of these young musicians sitting in Memphis dreaming of this idyllic life in, like, colonial British India. <laughs> I love that song. That's my favorite song on this record. Now, that was an Andy Hummel song, right? Yes, and it's even even in, in this box set, there's, there's a version of that where it's primarily Andy singing, and it's even more endearing because there's a bit more innocence in his delivery than when... Alex's vocal was added to his, and they they sing in unison. And I don't mean, you know, a sophistication in terms of Alex, but, you know, Alex is a lead singer, and uh, his delivery is a little more confident. I'd like to go to India, live in a big white house in the forest, drink gin and tonics, and play a grand piano. Yeah, read it's a few just beautiful. Books. It's uh, damnation. What a what a notion. Wouldn't everybody <laughs> love to do that? Yeah. We'll continue our discussion with big star drummer Jody Stevens after a short break on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. And later on, we'll review Jay-Z's new album, Blueprint 3.
welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Greg Cott here with Jim DeRogatis, and we've been conducting a double classic album dissection of Big Star's number one record and Radio City with the band's drummer Jody Stevens. Both have been recently re-released as a double album, and Jody, listening to both records again, I'm struck by just how amazing they still sound. I mean, number one record in particular sounds really meticulous, and I'm wondering, you know, were you guys really working precisely in that studio, and, and what was the role of uh, John Fry, the producer? Well, in terms of s- Sonics, John had a major role. John was the executive producer, the band, and then more specifically, I guess, Chris and Alex, and probably Andy, but it was we were, to some extent, following Chris's vision. Chris was pretty meticulous and, and uh, had spent, you can tell, spent many hours in the studio developing guitar sounds and parts and uh, experimenting. and So, yeah, there was a bit more of a meticulous record, but... Well, what happened there, Jody? Number one record comes out in late 1972. It does not become a number one record. By the time we get to Radio City and and the the sessions for that, uh, only like a year later, you guys are moving pretty quickly. Chris is no longer in the band. It's a different group. What what, what happened in that interim? Well, you know, it was Chris's decision to leave the band. Um, I think he just saw himself as being overshadowed by... Alex's presence, and that's not that wasn't derived from anybody in the band, especially Alex. It was derived more from a, a journalist perspective of the band, and and you know I think any journalist would point out that Alex had been in the box tops, and uh, the box tops were a successful band, but you know I, I th- again I think Chris saw himself as uh, ooh, uh, operating in the shadow of of Alex, so Chris left the band. At that point, I just remember sort of drifting apart and not really breaking up or, you know, no conscious decision to do that. And then as John King was putting this Rock Writers convention together that included, oh, I don't know, Bud Scoppel was there and Cameron Crowe and Dave Marsh. Lester Bangs, Bangs. I wrote about that a lot. It was apparently an infamous gathering. Yeah, Lester Banks and all that. As, as John was putting that together, he asked us to join with a performance, and it was more of a... Well, you know, rock writers were our audience. They were the ones that actually got the record. <laughs> Everybody else had a really, you know, in general, it's we weren't getting any radio play, and records weren't widely available just because, you know, distribution was distribution efforts were, weren't that great. So at any rate, rock writers were indeed our audience, and, and our audience was, was asking if, if we'd played the show. Alex, Andy, and I agreed to do it, and... And did and just damn it was a you know it was a wild conference and a wild show, and that I think motivated us all to get back together and uh, do Radio City. This was a record where, where Alex was much more firmly in control. There wasn't the two-songwriter thing as much uh, going on. Well, could you pinpoint the differences between the two, Jody? What was it that Alex and, and Chris each brought to the table? Wow, it's, you know, they both brought a sense of melody, certainly, and a sense of emotion. Their guitar playing styles were a bit different. I think Alex may have been a little more fluid guitar player. Alex may... Uh, Certainly, eventually, he wound up 
being a much more spontaneous musician in his performances and 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 the band itself whereas you know chris would labor over parts and songs so i in the end it was chris was a bit more studious and and meticulous about it and alex more spontaneous do you remember jody the day that alex comes in and uh gives you a tape or plays you a song called september girls you know, I, I don't remember that day in particular, but I know I must have been elated. It was just exciting from the opening chords. That song came off pretty quickly. The drum part for it, I didn't have to think about it much. So it isn't just us as fans and listeners. The first time you hear that song, there's a magic there, and you instantly say, yeah, this is a, this is a great one. Yes. You know, I wasn't the writer, and it was, it was just amazing to hear, well, with front number one record, Chris and Andy and Alec, where Chris and Alex bring in a song. Because these, these were songs at least for me, that were comparable to the cover songs that I'd been playing. Mm-hmm. There's a toughness to, the, to this record, too, that I think was more evident than on the first record. I'm thinking of, like, Oh My Soul. I think you do really come through with that Stax meets Brit Rock merger, and the way your drumming answers Alex's guitar just a massive drum sound and, and Alex has got this very tough rhythm guitar line going through it. Do you remember how that song came together? Uh, sure. Interesting. I'd, I'd taken a percussion class at what was then Memphis State and uh, a guy named Terry Hewlett was a percussion teacher and um, he had kind of reintroduced me to flams and paradiddles and all that sort of thing. And, and there was something about that that triggered how I approached Oh My Soul. just one of those things that Alex starts that guitar part, the intensity, the, the, the energy and the aggressiveness, aggressiveness that he plays with would set the tone for how I would play. Mm-hmm. So, so number one record had come out and not set the world on fire. Radio City's released. Did it do any better, Jody? <laughs> no, it didn't. <laughs> it, uh, and, you know, consequently, it, because it didn't do any better commercially, Although, you know, people like yourself, journalists, said really nice things about it. It kind of was the, the, the deciding factor in Andy Hummel leaving the band. It's, I think he decided at that point that, well, you know, we really can't make a career out of this. Or even a living 
I mean, it's got to be a horrible mix of feelings. People are writing incredible things about this band, but we're not selling any records, and I can't pay the rent. Um, was there ever any inkling in those dark days that a couple of decades hence, you guys would be considered, you know, one of the most influential American bands ever? You know, and you have your REMs and all these other superstars consistently dropping the name Big Star, Big Star. Well, you know, I think I par- I think my parents thought that. Really? <laughs> but that's... <laughs> They were always incredibly supportive. But, uh, you know, those weren't really dark days. We got great reviews. And while we didn't sell any records, I don't know, that just didn't seem to be a big deal to me. Mm. I knew music was a long shot. It it had succeeded on the level that uh, was, you know, satisfying to me. Well, and the big star myth just continues to grow. You know, you've got cheap cheap trick covering in the street for the theme song for that 70s show you know alex has had a song written about him by the replacements you know the posies who are big acolytes are now in big star as you and alex tour with the band um looking back at this retrospective material that's coming out the first two albums have been repackaged as one and you've got the box set has your perspective on the legacy of the band changed at all because of this continuing adulation that you've been getting I mean do you think the music is as good as you ever thought it was or was it a case of well I didn't know it then but I sure know it now that you know what we did then was was really accomplished oh I can't speak for the world but uh, at the time it was really exciting music for me it was just brilliant stuff it is interesting though how this how these songs evolved and uh, to go from in one case, an acoustic demo to the master version of the song on the record, it's a, a huge leap. Well, that says a lot about the band. The The sum is greater than the parts in a lot of ways, right? You know, I always thought we were a band, and uh, those records sound the way they do because we were a band, and we all made contributions, and, and we all, in in some form or fashion, shaped and and colored the way those albums sound well these albums absolutely endure and it's been a pleasure uh, talking about Big Star with you Jody Stevens thanks for coming on the show thank you it was a pleasure You're listening to Sound Opinions in our classic album dissection of two records by the Memphis power pop band Big Star, uh, number one record and Radio City. And uh, we always like to play a track or two from the record we're dissecting and sort of illustrate why these are classic records. In this case, we're, we're talking about two records. And I want to play something off the first one, uh, number one record. I think Alex Chilton is the name most associated with this band for obvious reasons. He had that huge pedigree already coming in, and obviously he's had a uh, a relatively well-observed solo career since then, both as a singer and songwriter and a producer. But the guy who sort of gets left out of the discussion a lot, Jim, I think is, is Chris Bell, his, oh, absolutely. his alter ego in this band. Uh, you know, it was, it was really Bell's band, and Chilton joined it and sort of overwhelmed things a little bit by the force of his personality and talent. But Bell was equally involved in that first record. Um, they co-wrote a lot of songs together, 
And Bell's voice and sensibility were a big part of that sound, why Big Star sounded the way it did. I wrote a piece in the early 90s, Greg, that was controversial among power pop fans, arguing that Bell was as great a talent as Mm -hmm. Chilton. If you stack it up, each wrote half, pretty much, of the first album. Right. And then Bell was pulling away when Radio City was being made, but, but he did contribute several of the best tracks. After he left the band... Chilton made one more masterpiece as Big Star with the third album, while Bell made one masterpiece of a solo album called I Am the Cosmos. That's two and a half brilliant records <laughs> each. I think they were very much Lennon and McCartney, two equally talented greats. Yeah, they were. And uh, the problem was that uh, Bell's stuff didn't really come out until well after his death in 1978 at age 26 in a car crash. So a lot of his contributions were obscured. He had a very troubled life. He was dealing with depression, heroin addiction. There were some questions about his sexuality that he himself was struggling with. I think he poured a lot of those anxieties into his music. And you can hear it on the very first song on the very first Big Star album. It's called Feel. And even though it's credited to Bell Chilton, and and Chilton certainly had a role in it, it is very much a Chris Bell track. It's a track that predates the start of, of Big Star. It's a very simple track in a lot of ways. Uh, lyrically, it's just dealing with the, the typical boy-girl issues that a lot of big star songs dealt with anyway. But in it, you can hear the contrast between the swagger. It's almost metallic in parts, where he's uh, emulating Robert Plant, I think, in parts of this song. And then it gets to the chorus, and there's that swooning, I feel like I'm dying part, where this vulnerability just rushes into the song. So there's a contrast between this macho swagger, augmented by the Memphis horns, and then this part of the song where you feel that this guy is just dying before your eyes. And I think that exemplifies, I think, what Chris Bell brought to Big Star, that emotional complexity, and at the same time just completely laying it on the line in these beautiful pop songs. So here it is from Big Star, a song called Feel from Number One Record, as written by Chris Bell on Sound Opinions.
That is Feel by Big Star from number one record, their debut. Nice call, Mr. Cott. I could uh, listen to Chris Bell sing all day. I want to highlight a song from the second album, Radio City. And in addition to the fact that uh, Bell died so young and that Chilton has continued with a long uh, solo career and, you know, had a song written about him by the replacements, Mm -hmm. among many other accomplishments, is this song that cements Alex Chilton's reputation. We heard a little of it earlier. I think we have to play it in its entirety because it is by far the best-known big star song. It should have been a number one hit single <laughs> in 1974 when it was released and it should have held the charts for like six or nine months because it is quite simply a perfect pop song one of the greatest ever written I would put this next to any single by the Beatles September Girls the influence lives on there would be no R.E.M. Peter Buck has said this without that chiming guitar sound mm-hmm. and the way the riff is so melodic and carries you through the song that wonderful break you know where Alex Chilton says ooh when she makes love to me and then you, you get this melody sweeps you away and you feel like like you're in the moment. What does it mean? I, I don't know. I've been looking at this song, listening to this song forever, and in the myriad cover versions, because the Bangles did it, had some success with it, and the Searchers and Super Drag. September Girls do so much. I was your butch and you were touched. Again, there's that, you know, it's this period of uh, sexual liberation, mm-hmm. pansexuality, the glam rock <laughs> let's experiment era. I think Alex Chilton's playing with that a little bit. This September Girl has broken his heart He's been crying all the time. December boys got it bad. It doesn't really mean anything. There's only three verses of four lines each, and uh, they don't really say anything. It's sort of a haiku. It's more about the mood of this September girl and you're the December boy. Here it is on Sound Opinions, a true power pop masterpiece, Big Star September Girls.
That's the classic September Girls by Big Star, wrapping up our classic album dissection of their first two albums, Number One Record and Radio City. To make a comment on the air about Big Star or anything in the rock and roll world, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. You can also send us an email at interact at soundopinions.org or talk to us on Facebook. Jim and I will return on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with a review of the highly anticipated new album from rapper Jay-Z and my Desert Island Jukebox pick. Support for Sound Opinions is provided by Alltech Lansing. Online at alltechlansing.com. This is anti-autotune, death for the ringtone. This ain't for iTunes, this ain't for sing-alongs. This is Sinatra at the opera, bring a blonde. Preferably with a fat ass who can sing a song. Wrong, this ain't politically correct. Uh, this might offend my political connect. Uh, my raps don't have melodies. This shit make jackets want go and commit felonies. Uh, Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. You are listening to The Death of Auto-Tune, one of the first singles from Jay-Z's new album, The Blueprint 3. Third installment of his Blueprint series. The masterpiece was in 2001, The Blueprint, period. A lot of people consider it Jay-Z's best album. I personally would go with the Black Album, but that's getting into opinion. I just want to give you a little background first. Second Blueprint installment, uh, two years after the first one, not nearly as well received. The Gift and the Curse, Blueprint 2. Now comes this record. Jay-Z, of course, burst out of the Brooklyn housing projects in 1996. Now he's about to turn 40. According to Forbes magazine, he raked in $82 million last year. As you noted in your review uh, in the newspaper, Greg, the line that sums them all up, I'm not a businessman. I'm a businessman. <laughs> and that's what he's been rapping about a lot ever since his celebrated comeback. I think in the hip-hop world, his comeback is what, what Jordan's was in basketball. So what has he given us this time? We'll get into that when we review it and rate it on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale. Let me tell you, first off, this is about as talented a roster of hip-hop production talent as money can buy. Kanye West produced a lot of the first Blueprint album. He's back to do six tracks here. Timbaland's here. No ideas here. Swizby. Even the Neptunes. Let's listen to a track that uh, we're excited about. Alicia Keys gives the vocal contribution. It's called Empire State of Mind by Jay Z on Sound Opinions. 
Yeah, yeah, I'm out at Brooklyn. Now I'm down in Tribeca, right next to the Nero. But I'll be hood forever. I'm the new Sinatra. And since I made it here, I can make it anywhere. Yeah, they love me everywhere. I used to cop in Harlem. All of my Dominicanos right there up on Broadway. Pulled me back to that McDonald's. Took it to my stash spot, 560 State Street. Catch me in the kitchen like a Simmons whipping pastry. Cruising down A Street, off white Lexus. Driving so slow, but BK is from Texas. Me, I'm out there bad Home of that boy Biggie, now I live on Billboard And I brought my boys with me, say what up to Tata Still sipping my top, sitting courtside Nicks and Nets give me high five Again, I be spiked out, I could trip a referee Tell by my attitude that I most definitely from That's Empire State of Mind, the new Jay-Z track from his new album, The Blueprint 3, his 11th studio album. Nearly 40-year-old Jay-Z. Hard to imagine a hip-hop star maintaining his relevance and his credibility as he approaches 40. But Jay-Z's apparently doing it. The big theme on The Blueprint 3, Jim, I'm still hard, I'm still rich, I'm still Jay-Z, and you're not. Yeah, yeah, that's Uh, about it. And Jay-Z has really not rapped about much else throughout his career. He is a guy who's transformed the whole idea of the street culture and coming up from from the ghetto into a whole new ballgame of I'm in the penthouse and I'm here and I'm wealthy and I'm really, really proud to be wealthy. It really is turning the whole hip-hop aesthetic on its head, this rap godfather image that he's created for himself. I think it goes a long way when he's involved, when he's at full speed. Unfortunately, on this album, I think he splits the difference between the two Blueprint albums. Remember on the first one, a young, hungry producer named Kanye West was working with him very closely. On the second, it was larded with guest stars. Mm -hmm. West is back, producing about half of this record. Most of the Kanye West cuts work really well. When he gets a good beat like A Star Is Born or Already Home, Jay-Z's at the top of his game. But i got to say, my friend Timbaland, as you refer to him, (laughs) is really off his game. He's been off his Uh. game lately, it's and true. The, the three tracks he lends to this record are not very good at all. So about half of this album is Jay-Z fully engaged. He still is one of the great wordsmiths, one of the great rhymers in hip-hop. On the rest, he's phoning it in. It is Jay-Z on autopilot. So I have to give this a burn it on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale. You know, it is disappointing, Greg, because Sean Carter is absolutely a fascinating character. If he were to rap about the real things in his life, his marriage to Beyonce, and his rise to run a record company. There's a, a toss-off line where he takes credit for President Obama being president. Right, right. You know, but what if he were to really examine over several tracks the role that hip-hop has played in, in bringing African-Americans into white suburbia and, and, and a legion of kids now voting for a black president? I mean, that would be fascinating stuff. Instead, he's making fun of the Jonas Brothers, yeah. and he's given us a little grammar lecture about the difference between further and father. <laughs> 
That having been said, I was surprised at how great the tracks sound. And if you if you don't pay attention to the content of, of Jay's lyrics, you know, that voice is still wonderful. It's a fun listen. It's just not going to change the world like the Black Album or Blueprint did. So I'm with you. I think it's a double burn it album. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as possible here on Sound Opinions, we like to take a trip to the desert island and pop a quarter in the jukebox, playing a track we can't live without. Mr. Cott, what do you got? Jim, thank you. Uh, I'm inspired by our discussion of Big Star today. We talked about uh, this term power pop a lot in discussing Big Star, and in many ways the quintessential power pop band. That terminology goes back to Pete Townsend and The Who in the mid-60s when he was describing their pre-rock opera sound. Guitar-based, very tight arrangements, harmony vocals, melody at the forefront. That's that sound that became paramount with those big star records that we were talking about earlier today. And that's a sound that goes on and on and on. We're hearing it every part of the world. The Midwest, for whatever reason, has been a big purveyor of power pop in the last few decades. We had the Raspberries out of Cleveland and Shoes in Zion, Illinois, Cheap Trick out of Rockford, Marshall Crenshaw and the Romantics out of Detroit, Material Issue out of Chicago. But the band I'm going to play is probably one of the least appreciated of the great power pop bands of the last two decades. A band out of Chicago. Uh, They've had numerous lineups over the years, but one constant in that band has been the primary singer and songwriter Jeff Lusher. I think he's got a terrific voice. He's steeped as much in Prince and soul and funk as he is in that British invasion music that so inspired Big Star. And I think he brought the two together in the green albums that he was making starting in 1986. That debut record is highly prized, almost impossible to find. Good news for Power Pop fans and Green fans because the record is finally going to be reissued in the next few weeks. And it is a gem. It is one of the great underground power pop records you're ever going to want to hear. Great harmony vocals, great melodies, those jangly guitars, and there's an edge to Lesher's voice that I think puts Green above most power pop bands. Some of the power pop bands tend to sound a little too white, a little too smoothed out. There was a sense of urgency in Green's music that I think is missing from some of the others, and you can hear it on this track. She's not a little girl from Green on Sound Opinions. Since I've been in the right of this path, and she wants to run up 
That's Green on Sound Opinions with She's Not a Little Girl, Mr. Cott's Desert Island Jukebox Pick. As always, Sound Opinions was produced by our ace team of Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn. And our executive producer, our fearless leader, our own December boy, is Tori Southside Malatia. Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. I'm calling you. I'm calling you. Can you explain what you want to do? New messages. Hey, Jim and Greg, this is Josh from New York. Um... Thank you so much, Jim, for poking a hole in the cup that overflows with critical praise for Fish and their live shows. Oh, I can't tell you how many times I've had an argument with my idiot friends who are like, oh, but they're such talented musicians. Did you know that one of them has their doctorate in music? I don't care because I don't want to listen to someone play a 15-minute solo on a vacuum cleaner. Keep up the good work. Hey, Sound Opinions. My name is Katie, and I live in West Philadelphia. Your bit about the Vivian girls left kind of a sour taste in my mouth. You aren't doing female musicians any favor by praising them for offering your younger daughter an alternative to the limiting sexual female archetype we all do have. I think the example that you gave was Miley Cyrus and Juno, and I have seen the Vivian girls perform about half a dozen times, and if you like sloppy, muddy, unskilled instrumentation, then I guess they're your band. But in my opinion, the Vivian girls, while very nice and personable, they're mostly hype. I have some recommendations for your younger daughter. Try Yellow Fever, Marnie Stern, Tunyard, Dirty Projectors, or Pony Pants. While most of these aren't exclusively female bands, these are examples of girls and boys playing music and playing it well. Thank you. JP calling from Ojai, California. In your supergroup episode a few weeks ago, you neglected the Highwaymen, Chris Christopherson, Waylon Jennings, and for crying out loud, Willie Nelson and Johnny Cash, a supergroup if ever there was one. And now on your show about work songs, where even though Labor Day is an American holiday, the preponderance of songs you featured were from the British Empire, you neglected Working Man Blues by Merle Haggard. Which is, as far as songs about work go, not as good as it gets. It's a big job getting by with nine kids and a wife. Yeah, but I've been a working man dang near all my life and keep on working. Long as my two hands are fit to use. I drink my beer at a tavern and 
to sing a little bit of these working man blues. What is it? You're a rock and roll show, so you don't like country music, even though the dead covered working man blues? Anyway, I just felt obliged to give him all his due. Great show as always, guys. Keep up the good work. Come Monday morning, I'm right back with the crew. I drank a little beer that evening, sang a little bit of these working man blues. Hey guys, great show on the Labor Day uh, tunes today, but you forgot something painfully, painfully obvious. Working for the weekend, boys, or do you not like Canadian rockers? Come on, we gotta bring back Loverboy. Come on, come on. Chris Whips calling from San Francisco. Bye. messages. To give us your opinion on sound opinions, call our hotline 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.